Hello and welcome to the Speaking Out podcast from the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Our goal is to highlight our programs and the amazing work that they're doing around the state, provide discussion around the topics of domestic violence, and create an environment of education and empowerment for anyone that may be experiencing domestic violence. With the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence felt it necessary to start a very important discussion. NMCADV's David Garvin facilitates leading voices in domestic violence. Dr. Carolyn West, Jessica Noonan, and Scott Miller join us to talk about how this is going to affect survivors of domestic violence. We will address how power and control presents in abusive relationships and how those who cause harm will use the recent ruling of Roe versus Wade to control and ultimately abuse their partners. Before we begin this discussion, I would love to give our guests the opportunity to introduce themselves to our audience. My name is Dr. Carolyn West, and I am a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Washington. And I've been a domestic violence sexual assault researcher for more than 30 years now, but particularly passionate about this topic because I've been a longtime sex educator as well, been teaching human sexuality classes for decades as well. And so I've worked with reproductive health issues, and I did work extensively, and I am working now with the American Psychological Association on the intersection between mental health and abortion. So this is a topic that I care very deeply about. And having worked as an expert witness, talking with women who have been victims of reproductive coercion, it's just an issue I don't think we talk enough about, and it's too invisible. And now is the time that we have to really start addressing this. My name is Scott Miller. I'm with the Domestic Abuse Intervention Programs in Duluth, Minnesota. I've been, I'm the executive director and I've been here for 22 years doing work as an intervention project, which is our agency. So we create interventions in the community, in government systems, in, in medical systems to help communities respond better to this problem of domestic assault. And we do that work locally, nationally, and internationally with our partners. Our agency created the Power and Control Wheel back in the early 1980s under Ellen Pence. And now we are having this conversation today about how that's related to this decision in Roe versus Wade and the connections between the way that women get marginalized in their homes and the way that now the federal government has had a hand in further colluding with that marginalization that women experience. It's good to be here. My name is Justin Noon. I'm the co-CEO of Kim and I Latino with New Oceanside for Peace to Equity. We are a comprehensive domestic violence organization based in Atlanta for Latino families impacted by violence. I have been lucky enough to work with the organization since 2005 and have been involved in violence prevention, either through volunteer or through direct work for over 30 years. And so I think that really my main motivation in terms of being a part of this podcast, but also just my overall work is knowledge is power. That is not a mind-blowing, that's a very common, but at the same time, I think that it's really important for people to understand and to really understand what family violence is, how specifically the realities of how this legislation will impact survivors and their families with Roe versus Wade, and even just taking family violence out of it, the impact on Roe versus Wade on the society as a whole. And so any ways in which I can help to increase awareness and get past basically the sound bites, I'm all about. So thank you for, for allowing me to be a part of this. My name is David Garvin, and I'm the Director of Battering Intervention Services and Systems Response with the New Mexico Coalition Against Domestic Violence. I'm also the Chair of the Battering Intervention Services Coalition of Michigan, and I have been directly involved in this movement for the past 36 years, and I am delighted that all of you have joined us today. David, could you please explain the framework of this discussion? using the power and control wheel almost as a kaleidoscope to look at each tactic. First, define it, and then to look at each tactic and how perpetrators of domestic violence are using that tactic or could use that tactic as a way that is 
enhanced, infused, and emboldening their stance on perpetration of domestic violence. The one other thing I want to put out there is the concern that some people have when you start shining a light on this is now you're going to give perpetrators all kinds of ideas about what to do. That's a, a false reality in that it's impossible to even talk about this. It's impossible for a perpetrator to sit in a holding cell and not talk to somebody else and say, what'd you do? And he says some idea and he's like, I never thought about that. But I I think for those people who are concerned that if we're talking about this, that we're going to be somehow hatching a new breed of perpetrator, I I think that's a falsehood. Anybody disagree with that? No. Uh -uh. Okay. So we're going to talk about the 10 tactics on the power and control wheel. People look at the power and control wheel and they say, there's eight segments of the pies. Why are you saying there's 10? Because that thin band around the outside of sexual and physical violence are the additional two tactics. So eight and two, 10. And the reason the physical and the sexual violence on the outside of that wheel is it's what holds it all together. When I first learned about the power and control wheel, again, from Michael and Ellen, they talked about it as a wagon wheel and that that thin band of metal around the wagon wheel, once industrialization got to the point of being able to use iron, was something that gave it more definition, it gave it more strength, it gave it more durability. And that's the function of physical violence within domestic violence, is it changes everything inside of that wheel. So the definition of physical abuse is any unwanted physical contact especially that which may cause fear, pain, or injury, whether done directly or indirectly. So how does that play as we're looking at the the Supreme Court's decision? From my perspective, because name study after study has shown that women who are experiencing family violence and domestic violence are more at risk from pregnancy. And so as a result, if the woman is not able to have a choice of whether to be pregnant or not be pregnant, then is not only putting the welfare of the baby at risk, but also of the woman herself. Because again, they they have shown that she's more likely to experience physical abuse during pregnancy. And so that is just the first one that comes to mind where I see about how the recent change continues to impact survivors of violence. And I'd piggyback on that, that um, the research that I've seen, I'm sure we've all seen, is that the location of the physical assaults change from her head and back to her breast and abdomen when she becomes pregnant. And I think related to that, the other thing is that it also relates into the idea of value to protect. And so if basically she it's a kind of situation where the abuse results in the loss of the baby, then it goes into not so much him taking the life, but instead, why didn't she leave? If she was in danger, if she was really worried about the welfare of herself as well as the baby, why didn't she leave? Again, she is not the one who is causing the violence, but at the same time, she's the one who's held responsible for the impact and the results of it. Yeah, and I would add to that as well. Pregnancy is just a stressful time, even when it's a wanted pregnancy and it's a happy, healthy relationship that the person is in. And so what then will happen when you get the anticipation of challenges coming with parenthood, the financial, economic challenges, emotional challenges, and will some perpetrators use that pregnancy as a reason to escalate their violence? Because the pregnancy wasn't wanted, or he's blaming her for the pregnancy, or it's not the best circumstances for the couple. So I anticipate that we'll see just more violence as a result of these untimely pregnancies. Carolyn, what do you think about taking what you just said one step further? Have any of you considered an increase in homicides? Because if she can't make a choice not to complete the pregnancy, and and if he doesn't want her to be pregnant, is it a fair consideration that she's at increased risk for homicide while she's pregnant in those kind of cases? Is there any evidence about that? We do see that, that pregnant women or women who've just shortly after given birth are at escalated rates of domestic homicide. So there is a body of literature that absolutely demonstrates that. 
Yeah, I was just going to say that the struggle that people who are watching this have to understand for her is that she's living in a space where she doesn't have her own autonomy. So if she becomes pregnant, then he's deciding whether she goes forward with it or not, which has nothing to do with what she wants. So she may want the child and he doesn't want the child. That puts her at risk. She doesn't want the child. He wants the child. That puts her at risk. She's at risk. And that puts the child at risk. I worked in an abortion clinic when I was working my way through college. And the women that came through, there there were women that came through where they were trying to protect a man's reputation because she had become pregnant and he was coercing her to go through this. It was shocking to me how much that was happening. And there were other examples where she was coming to the facility to have the abortion where he didn't know about it. And she was trying to keep it from him because she knew she wasn't going to be able to decide in her own home what she was going to do with this child safely. So so just understanding that this isn't two people trying to figure out what they're going to do with with a pregnancy. This is one person who's at risk trying to navigate the threat that their partner poses if there's a difference in what she thinks needs to happen versus what he thinks needs to happen. And this is where the violence comes in. This is where the punishment, when she doesn't adhere to what he wants, and all of that, depending on how entitled he is, how invested he is, and whatever decision is being made, if she goes against it, that can seriously increase her risk for serious violence. So the definition of sexual abuse is any contact, statements, or actions which are intended to cause or result in physical, emotional, or psychological sexual injury to another person. Some of it is basically, again, with domestic violence being about power and control, one of the primary and one of the hardest in order to really hold abusers accountable for is is this forcing their partner to have sex. Because even though it is illegal, at the same time trying to prove it is a whole different factor. And so as a result, if you are already in a situation where you don't have power or control over when you want to have sex, then basically that increases the chances If your partner obviously is refusing to wear a condom or prevents you from having any kind of birth control itself, again, it's putting it where you don't have control over whether or not you are going to get pregnant. And then the other thing is that if it's multiple pregnancies, one after another, after another, after another, the impact on the woman's body and the inability to really heal After each baby, and especially nurse or anything like that, it just has long-standing impact. Finally, the other way is is that if your partner is also not faithful and they're not using any kind of protection with any other partners and also increases the chances that you get any kind of STI, that could cause an issue with the pregnancy, any kind of complications. It puts her at additional risk for continuing or for ongoing medical issues. And so, again, it's having a negative, potentially long-term impact on the woman's health and well-being. Yeah, and I would add to that, too. When we talk about sexual violence, that's why it's important to expand that beyond sexual assault to reproductive coercion which exists sort of at the intersection of domestic violence and sexual violence in that way. So it oftentimes takes a form of pregnancy pressure. So that verbal or emotional pressure to become pregnant or to terminate pregnancy against the survivor's wishes. It could take the form of contraceptive sabotage. So withholding or hiding or destroying birth control. And then when a pregnancy occurs, then it takes the form of pregnancy outcome control. So I'm either going to pressure you to have this child when you don't want to, or have the child, whatever is inconsistent with her wishes for the pregnancy. And so we have to think broadly when we think about sexual violence to make sure that we're including that kind of control of reproduction in that way. And again, just kind of going to the audience who might be watching mm-hmm. this, like the reason why that Jessica and Carolyn is saying why that's so important is that, is that one of the things that guys will talk about in group is the fact that he owns her and he didn't treat her that way in the front end. 
right? Typically, because he knows that she's not going to be around him if, if he just starts out being abusive. So then the question is, how does that switch? How do you go from this guy who's treating her in a certain way to get her wanting to be with you? And then it shifts to this where you're making all the decisions and punishing her for doing things you don't want her to do. And the guys will say, well, when you got her, right? Well, okay, so tell me when, what are examples of that, right? Well, it's marriage. It's moving away from family. It's pregnancy. Pregnancy is huge because now she's tied to him for life, right? This child will bind her to him. And if I get her pregnant, it's going to be hard for her to leave, right? Because we've got this thing now that we share. So abusers look at pregnancy as a way to solidify her in his life and make it extremely difficult for her to go. So that's why this decision is important. We've had women in Minnesota coming from as far away as Texas already looking for abortions. Now, how many women can afford the gas money it's going to take to travel to a state where they can get this abortion without him knowing it? This is why this decision is so important in the space that we're talking about, because it gives a woman who's already has compromised autonomy, even less autonomy, and the state is backing it up. I think sexual abuse is at the heart of this issue in so many ways, and that the general public, I think, has really struggled to understand sexual abuse within domestic violence, in part because the average person thinks about rape as something that happens when a guy jumps out from a bush, you know, and sexually assaults a stranger. And we know the reality is that you're more likely to be sexually assaulted by somebody that you know, that you're in a relationship with. People have a hard time understanding that. And that if you think about all of the things which are explicitly sexual abuse added to the reality of the coercion that happens, even without any kind of thing that the general public would say that's sexual abuse. And many perpetrators of domestic violence see sex as a way of measuring whether or not she accepts my apology. So I'll, I'll know when she accepts my apology about whether or not she has sex with me. And so for her, that may be part of navigating a very unsafe environment of, okay, this is what I have to do to get him to not harm me more, is I have to go along with that. So now what seemed like a pretty direct, pinpointed example of sexual abuse is now kind of mushrooming out to be something much more complicated, and it is. Intimidation is defined as any physical action taken or omitted which invokes a fear of negative consequences. There's going to be so many examples of intimidation around reproductive freedom. It's intimidation from the laws that are present, turning her in for making this decision in a community that doesn't give her that right. Obviously, the intent of and the reality of walking through the lines of protest into a clinic like the one you used to work at, Scott, that's about intimidation. We're living in a world where every night the realities of the intimidation at a macro level, at a policy level, at a law level, at a prosecution level, you know, what are the risks for me doing something if I'm a woman to my body, with my body, for my body, about my body? It's nothing but risk. It's a domino effect. So it's the initial threat of, I will turn you into the authorities if you try and have an abortion. Then the more long-term impact in terms of, oh, and I'll also, I'll also contact Child Protective Services. Because what kind of mom are you? If you're thinking about aborting this baby, what does that mean? And I really trust you to take care of the children we already have. And so, and again, six months ago, I would have been like, that's crazy talk. There's no way. But I think that the recent road versus way decision has created such a sense of uncertainty in such a gray area in terms of what might this legislation mean. I'm noticing different kinds of legislation coming out. And I know this doesn't have to do with it, but like the don't say gay bill in Florida. It is so ambiguous that whoever wrote it was a genius because 
it's really a catch-all and you can use it to any advantage in terms of it because they basically created all that that wasn't even necessary for what they were claiming that they, they were addressing. And that's my fear with this is that it starts off with basically we're, we're protecting the unborn. But at the same time, well, what exactly and at what limits and what exactly are the specifications in terms of who you're protecting, what is it considered the unborn, that that kind of thing. And so I think the sense of I can turn you in and this might impact your job, your ability to keep your children, your reputation, the way people view you. And so I think it's just a lot of longstanding and the law is no longer able to provide a clear guidance. It's going in the opposite direction where it's getting harder and harder to rely on the law to help protect you and your safety and well-being. And I want to add to that too. I mean, part of intimidation is things like destroying property. And that property could also mean various forms of birth control. So not allowing her to access those forms of birth control to prevent a pregnancy that's unwanted. And part of intimidation is stalking. And with technology like period apps, where you can track when your period is, that's just another resource that the perpetrator can then use to track her period to see if she's pregnant, if she's using birth control and he doesn't want her to, or to see if she's pregnant. So that kind of technology can also be a form of intimidation too. Just again, to help people kind of look at the perspective from a macro view. There's layers of intimidation happening that she's got to navigate. There's the layers of the federal government. There's the layers of the, of the state government. There's the local government officials that could be a threat because they've got the backing of the state and the federal government about the decision she wants to make about her body. And then there's the individual who she's living with. And all of those different layers of intimidation impose an experience on her that she has to navigate. She's just not navigating him anymore. So we know that when domestic violence laws were passed, that had an impact on an individual's notion that they get to just do this with impunity because it's not impunity anymore. You can get held accountable for what it is that you're doing in the house. That's no longer the case in respect to her reproductive freedom. So this puts an incredible amount of weight on a woman making a decision in a state that has banned abortion. So the next tactic we're going to talk about is threats. And threats is defined as statements which promise negative consequences for certain behaviors or actions. And people have often struggled with the difference between threats and intimidation. And I would always say that the difference is intimidation is you can look at a situation, you don't have to have the sound on, you don't have to listen to it, you can just see the posture, the vibe, and so on. But threats are statements which promise negative consequences for certain behaviors or actions. I'll just talk a little bit in general about the tactic itself, and then Jessica and Carolyn can jump in on some examples. But the reason that threats work is because he's established himself as a threat. That's already happened. So she knows he's willing to cross the line. So somebody in a relationship where there's no threats, there's no fear, there's no history of abuse, any of that going on, and somebody says, you better not do that. Probably the first response is, or what? Like, what are you going to do, right? But the woman living with an abuser knows what he's going to do because he's already done it. He's already demonstrated that. So that's what makes the threat that he states to her effective is his ability to back it up and his history of violence, which always will stand next to him with every word that comes out of his mouth. And so now that Roe has changed and women don't have access to reproductive health care, those he can use the state to back up those threats. Yes. Threats to report her if she tries to terminate the pregnancy or leave the state to terminate the pregnancy. So he has another tool in his toolbox to be able to make good on those threats and that coercion. And it's a tool that's backed up by the highest court in the nation, right? So when we're thinking about when we were talking about sexual abuse earlier, there are a lot of people, including myself, where if my husband wants to and I don't, I can say no. And that's fine. There, 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 there's no issue. But at the same time, women who are in abusive relationships don't have that same option. Then that threat of 
Remember last time when you told me you were tired or you weren't feeling well or whatever it may be. And FYI, this time I will make sure that it's during, you know, because again, I can track your fertility and I will make sure put you at risk for, for pregnancy. And so it's a never ending thing. And I think that with technology, it has also made threats easier because of the fact that you can track everything location, who they're talking to, who their friends are, anything like that. Again, it's proven like they've shown what can happen. And then the stakes have only increased basically with with Rover Flake. I was having a conversation with a family member over this past weekend. She she and I on different sides. But at the same time, we both had the opportunity to go to college, graduate from college. You know, we both have been in professions, so overall, basically informed, and we both have access to to a lot of information. But at the same time, despite all of this, she lives in North Carolina, and the way she said it is, is you know, I'm all about free choice, but do you know in North Carolina, people can just go ahead, get an abortion at seven months if they want to. And <laughs> thank you. That that was my that was my my, my reaction. It's the way in which everything is being talked about, depending on what news station, what media outlet you're tuning into. And so it is very scary just at how, again, this can be used and it's now strengthened these threats because people are supporting legislation because they're believing this. And it isn't just a small group of people. It's a larger and larger group of people who are believing kind of the headlines or what seems to work for, for, for them or that very, very small exception where somebody might be having to terminate a pregnancy at seven months due to viability or anything like, like that. The next tactic that we're going to talk about is coercion. And coercion is defined as statements or actions which imply indirectly negative or positive consequences for a certain behavior or action. Well, okay. So again, I can just give you an overview of that tactic. And then Jessica and Carol want to jump in with examples. But coercion, to set that up, you have to, again, have a history of violence that you've set yourself up as a threat to her physical or emotional or spiritual well-being. So she knows that that's who she's living with. And then there's this thing about controlling what she values, what she's tied to. Where we see it happening a great deal is around sexual assault, is at unsupervised exchanges of kids, where he drives up with the kids and she hasn't seen him for two months because he's not returned them. And then he gets in the car and demands oral sex, or he drives away with the kids. Now, she's went to the state and she said, well, okay, to the court, he's not giving the kids back. And the court says, well, it's a police matter. You got to call the police. So she calls the police and the police come and they say, this is a civil matter. Go back to court. Right. So the state has basically relinquished responsibility for the fact that they've made an order that he's not following. And now he's using that the state ineffectiveness and in, in responding to coerce her into sexual abuse and assault and rape. And she has no place to go. So again, we go back to this thing. What makes coercion effective when you don't have a consequence for executing it? And in this particular instance, the state has relinquished responsibility for saying that women get to make this choice. And so now he can use that to coerce her into doing things that she would not normally choose to do. But because he's got the backing of the state, it makes it a lot harder to make the decision. Yeah, I think Scott has really covered it. When I think of coercion, it's let's say that the woman is able to travel to, to another state, where again, if we're talking about a lot of survivors, that's not feasible in terms of cost, access to resources. But let's say that they do have the ability to go to states that may allow abortion and their partner knows. Then all of a sudden, it turns into, if you don't do this, then I will alert authority. It's almost a tool where then it's it's used as a threat about future punishment because of the way the law is set up, it's all put on the woman. It may have been that he drove her there, that he helped out. But if if I'm correct and, and I could be wrong, but there doesn't seem to be any consequence for basically the biological father driving the mom 
to go get the abortion. And so as a result, it's one of those where even if they made that joint decision, it's still all on her. And it doesn't matter about what his role is. And so it's just another way to control her actions. Yeah, I think it's more related to other forms of violence. But in some states, there will be, you know, aiding and abetting. So that's kind of like the use of others. Another way of coercing people or controlling people in that way, because if your sister or your mother drives you to that appointment, then I will get them in trouble for aiding and abetting an abortion. So it's a way also of isolating the victim so that you don't have other choices. It's really hard to talk about all these forms of power and control because they, they're all interconnected. And I definitely think in terms of the role of relatives, so let's say my sister had an abortion and without even thinking about it, I mentioned it. And all of a sudden, it's, if you're not careful, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to let the authorities know about, about your sister. And so because, again, there's one thing in terms of survivors putting themselves in danger, but once basically their families are being brought into this also, they're much more likely to yield to, to the abuser. To Carolyn's point, where the experience of the woman who's being abused is that these tactics are coming at her as a constellation of tactics. I mean, he's using privilege, coercion, and the kids, and minimize and I blame all at the same time, which makes it really hard for her to articulate what's happening. But we're trying to kind of do a deep dive into each one of these things. But again, to Carolyn's point, that's not how she experiences them. And that's not how he executes them. He executes multiple tactics at once with always the backdrop that he can be physically violent to back it all up. Exactly. So the coercion of, you remember what happened the last time you didn't do what I wanted you to do. You know, if you don't want to have my baby, I'll find somebody else who does. Those kind of statements, making her follow through with getting an abortion if she doesn't want one is also another way of how we're seeing this. In addition to that, she wants to have a choice in her reality of reproductive choice. Him controlling her access to that, possibly financially, she may be dependent on him. So if she's in a state where she doesn't have access to that, uh, his holding over her, the coercive aspects of I'll pay for you to go to blank state, but you've got to do this, that, and the other thing. The negotiations, real negotiations don't happen when you have such an imbalance of power as you do in domestic violence. But, you know, coercing her to see that there's no other option that you have to have this child. This is it. It doesn't matter if you have any kind of existing health condition. You have to have a child. You have to have this child. In addition to his physically assaulting her in such a way that will cause her to lose that child or the threat and coercion of doing that again to her. Economic abuse is defined as any action which limits her ability to earn, have access to, or manage the economic resources in her life. So it's interesting when you listen to women talk about this, they mention money, obviously, because this is what we all think of, but they have a much more broader kind of experience with it. And one woman put it, uh, it's the economy of abuse, that no matter what I want, whether it's money, whether it's time with my family, whether it's the car, whether it's groceries, no matter what I want, there's a price on it and he gets to set it and I have to pay it. Again, that's the space that she's operating in. And so, so many women have said, if I leave him, I leave my phone, I leave my car, I leave my housing. I don't even have the clothes. Like everything is in his name. I walk out with nothing, right? And so how is that woman supposed to make this decision to travel across state lines or even within a state? and pay for an abortion when she has no access to the funds. It's the easiest way to just really keep women entrapped in these relationships. I mean, how do you leave if you have multiple children? I mean, it just I've worked with women who had as many as six children. Where do you find shelter and the resources that you need? So you're really entrapped in that way. So you really, it puts survivors in a terrible double bind because if they stay, because you don't want to be homeless or without economic resources to provide for your children, 
then you're accused of neglect or exposing them to domestic violence. If you stay in that situation, then if you leave with no economic resources, which you can't really access, then you're still accused of being a terrible mother too. So they really have just some really awful choices to make, but certainly unplanned pregnancy can just make it so much more difficult economically. And especially like if the partner doesn't allow access to purchase birth control, that also makes a difference or being able to go to a clinic in order to be able to access his birth control. And that's, again, kind of the rumblings that are going on is that Roe versus Wade is not, is not the one and done. That this is basically just the first and now it's going to, and now it can impact contraception. But if you have somebody who is, controlling your access to even healthcare and being able to do it. Unfortunately, the other thing is now access to a safe termination of your pregnancy is going away. If you're in the situation where it's either you have this baby or else I'm not going to support her children, on the surface, you can be like, you know what? No worries. I'll just take you to court. Well, we all know that the judicial system is not fast. It can make it very, very difficult. It puts the responsibility on the survivor to try and make any kind of changes. And that's if you're talking about somebody who has access to these kind of resources, because with the community that we work with, they don't have the same access to transitional housing. They may be able to stay in a shelter, but as Carol was saying, what happens after 30 days? Or if you have a child that's, that's over 16. Exactly, exactly. And so it's just the implications and the challenges for the survivor. And if she has her current children, it's a no-win situation. If you go to a doctor or something like that, is there a copay? Is that an aspect of this that we have not identified? Yeah, you have to pay for the procedure with the Hyde Amendment. The government can't pay for the procedure. So You know, so government entities can't perform abortion. So if you are in a jail, if you are on a military installation, access may be more challenging, but you have to pay for the procedure itself. And and many insurances may not cover that. So there is a reality of cost associated with this, that if she doesn't have access to that money, how will she be able to afford that? Yeah, it just won't happen. And the later you are in the pregnancy, obviously, the more costly it is. So with all these delays, if you have to travel to another state, if you can't get an appointment because they're all booked up, and then you're later into the pregnancy, it could cost thousands of dollars. And it's also the money associated with travel, too. There are just whole swaths of the country where access is not available. So you may have to travel two to three states over or more, Some in some cases, hundreds of miles to find a provider. Even when Roe was in place, the clinic that I used to work in in the 80s was, was the only one in the state of mm-hmm. North Dakota. And it was mm-hmm. in, in Fargo on the far eastern end of the state. So there was women coming from the far western part of the state that had travel hours to get there then they'd have the procedure, but then they couldn't travel for, I think it was two days after the procedure. So they had to have a night or two in a hotel. Again, I mean, it's just, it becomes cost prohibitive for a lot of people, even when it was in place. Now that it's not in place, now it just becomes more expensive, especially if you're living in a state that doesn't provide it. All of that happening, of course, at a time during the price of gasoline is high. The price of flying mm-hmm. on an airline is mm-hmm. absurdly high. So yeah, the economics of this are something that cannot be overstated. The next tactic that we're going to talk about, I'll give a little bit of an explanation. Most people understand it as minimizing, denying, and blaming. And on the wheel that I'm looking at, a revised version of that wheel, change that category to using obfuscation. And I'll give you the definition of that, but just in terms of the dictionary definition, obfuscation is to darken someone's understanding. And minimizing, denying, and blaming are three examples of many ways to obfuscate. But obfuscation is defined as any action of obscuring, concealing, or changing people's perceptions, which result in your advantage and or her disadvantage. 
How are we seeing obfuscation being used by perpetrators of domestic violence with regard to the Supreme Court decision? Well, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions around abortion. I think what would happen is that perpetrators would use all of those misconceptions about, oh, you will have a future health problems if you terminate this pregnancy, or you will have mental health problems if you terminate this pregnancy. So they can use all of the misconceptions to control and coerce the victim's decision-making around that. I also think of gaslighting in terms of, oh, no, no, you told me it was safe. You know, I, I wouldn't have had sex if I had known that, you know, you could get pregnant or, oh, no, no, I, you know, I use protection. But again, kind of putting it all on, I did what I was supposed to. You must not be keeping track of your cycle type deal. And so, again, this is on you. I did what, what I was supposed to. And so really starting to have a survivor doubt their recollection, what really happened and their, their own memory. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, regardless of what happens, right, he's going to find a way to not be responsible for it and put it on her. So again, we're back to this thing, which we keep coming back to in different ways. It's all on her because he's not going to be responsible for something that happens that is negative. And if it costs money that he didn't anticipate, now it's going to be on her. Well, we decided this. No, you decided this because you got pregnant. I didn't get pregnant. You got pregnant. Right. I mean, it's all that stuff that she has to contend with. And I will say that in the focus groups and individual interviews I've done with women over the years, this is the tactic that sticks with them the longest. This is the thing that's so hard for them to unpack because it undermines their ability to test what is real. Whereas the violence they can name, they can see, they can talk about. But years later, they're still wondering if what they see is real because they've had their reality questioned to such a deep degree. And again, makes her easier to control, which is the intent behind so many of these tactics. It makes her easier to control. If I control the money, right, I control her mobility. If I can control what she does through intimidation, then it's a legal way for me to get her to submit because intimidation isn't a crime, right? And minimize and I am blame. If she can't ground herself in what is real, then I'm the one who gets to decide. I'm the voice in her head. And she's a lot easier to control. I mean, this is the intent behind these different tactics. So for those who are listening to this, thank you. But yes, you did hear Scott say, it's all on her at the same time that we're taking away her rights, her choices, her ability, her autonomy. This is part of the dilemma and comprehending the incomprehensible position that survivors of domestic violence are in, where he's telling me I have the responsibility. I'm the one who's responsible for getting pregnant. I'm the one who's responsible for not getting pregnant. I'm the one who has all these responsibilities. But now the, the government and the country I live in is telling me I don't have the ability to make any choices. The next tactic that we're going to talk about is that of isolation. And isolation is any actions intended to or resulting in her physical, psychological, emotional, or social disruption or separation from those people, places, or things she is attached to or enjoys. And again, the intent is she's easier to control when nobody's talking to her but me. I mean, that's the idea behind it from the abuser's perspective. And so the more people that get thoughts into her head, the harder it is for him to control her narrative. And so isolation, then the only reference she has in the world to make a decision is him. That's the way he wants it. And isolation is really the inverse of autonomy, right? So the ability to think, choose, have likes and dislikes, all of that is what has been ignited by this decision to take away a woman's right for choice results in isolation, which is a core tactic you just heard Scott talking about of perpetrators of domestic violence. And certainly one way to keep the survivor isolated is at home with small children. So it makes it difficult to work. It makes it difficult to leave home. You may not have access to daycare or something of that nature. And so the perpetrator will know where you are. You will be at home with small children that you're having to care for. So that's one perfect tactic to help with isolation. 
And they'll also do things like show up for medical appointments. So you can't really even talk to your doctor and tell them that you're feeling unsafe in this relationship as well. With the isolation in terms of preventing them from being able to do their checkups during the pregnancy and being able to really not only check about the health of the baby, but then also the health of the mom. And then it goes again into this whole thing about if it turns out to be a topic pregnancy. And if the woman doesn't have access and she's being isolated from even medical care, the danger that her life is in or the potential danger that her life is in, and even just the availability of knowing what legally she is still allowed to do. Because there is so much confusion now, depending on what state you're in and how it works, everything else, even isolating in terms of turning off internet, changing the Wi-Fi password if you're leaving or anything like that. I mean, there's so many ways that you can now isolate that's more than just physical isolation. And just think of there are countries in the world where I've worked with people where domestic violence is not a crime and the level of isolation. So I remember asking a religious leader from, I believe it was Kazakhstan, why do men beat women in your country? And he said, because they can because there's not a single place in our country for a woman to call for help. And the level of isolation, right, it's hard to wrap your head around if that isn't your experience. Well, now imagine here, we break that isolation down by giving them the option of calling the state for help if this is what's happening. Now the state is colluding with him around reproductive coercion. And you don't have a resource locally, nationally that you can access to counter what he's doing to you. So that takes us to the last two tactics that we're going to be talking about in this discussion. Second to last is that of using children or others, which is defined as any direct or indirect action involving children, other people, pets, or social institutions used as leverage to gain advantage. One obvious way is, well, you can't leave me now because we have children or, you know, certainly threatening to harm the children if the victim doesn't comply with what the perpetrator wants. Or take the children. Mm -hmm. This is also one of those examples similar to what you were talking about earlier of how tactics of abuse change. Using others is also something of using the law. You know, this is what the law is. You have to do this. The law is in agreement with me as father knows best, king of the castle. The choice is not yours to make. It's, it is your body, but don't get to make choices about it. Well, and as Jessica said earlier, I, this is where my worry goes, is what's going to happen in custody court. So if she does get away from him, and now there's a custody battle, and she had an abortion in states where abortion is illegal, Is this going to be part of a judge's decision about whether she is a fit mother? And does that bias come into the space? And I talk to women who go back to these abusive relationships because they tried to get away. They went to custody court and he got custody of the kids and she wants to be with her kids. So she goes back to be with her kids and take living with somebody who's being abusive to her because she wants to see her children. It's just another way to collude with these abusers to make it easier to do what they're doing. Yeah, I also think about using the credentials of others. Like, listen, if Supreme Court judges said this, and they, you know, they're the receptive, they were nominated, all sorts of stuff, then, then it must be right. And so as a result, what this has also done is that it has really taken a huge step back in terms of the way to view women. And so first and foremost, above anything else, a woman's ability to have children is always number one. And so all of a sudden, it begs the question, well, what does that mean for women who aren't able to have kids? And should they be valued or, or anything like that? And so I think it's really kind of put it as a package deal. Like a woman is not her own person anymore. And she is litigated based on her decisions around her fertility. It's just a very, very scary thing. And again, by being able to use professionals or others who are in a different position, it really kind of just adds fuel to the fire. Who's not me? I'm just going by, by law and law is telling me 
that this is your number one role. Yeah, using institutions is absolutely a part of that tactic, whether it's law, faith community, her family, his family. It's absolutely, absolutely there. The last tactic that we're going to talk about is called male privilege, which is any action or inaction based on attitudes or beliefs that you have special or exalted status over others, particularly women. And if you look at the etymology of privilege, comes from the Latin private and law. So this is private law, the privilege to make these decisions by people who don't have a uterus about people who do have one is endemic in what we're talking about. It's at the center of what we're talking about. And for perpetrators, this is a gleeful green light and call to action to be able to operate in a community and culture that is like-minded. You know, I get to make the decisions because I'm the king of the castle. Yeah, it's really a notion that he's entitled to make the decision. He's not necessarily wanting power. Like, that's not really in his language. It's what he gets. But it's really just sitting back and thinking, I'm entitled to this because you're mine. I'm entitled to your submission. I'm entitled to decide. And that belief system is now, in a sense, codified mm-hmm. by the Supreme Court decision. The word that we've said a couple times during this, I think we have to just keep driving that word home, is with impunity. And that is because of who I am, I can operate with impunity. And you are my property. I get to make decisions about what happens and what doesn't happen, like your Definitely. choice. And I think it's, so it's one of those ideas where if somebody hears me say, oh, hey, women, you know, women are more than just their ability to be able to have a child. It can easily be twisted in terms of what your intention is. I feel very privileged in the fact that I was able to have kids, but that doesn't mean that at the end of the day, I want all my value based on the fact that I had children and that being it. Because men don't have that same thing. And also, in some ways, even though this is going way against male privilege, but at the same time, it also negates men's role in parenthood. Because if you're putting all the value on the woman and the ability to have a kid and not putting any value about what happens after that kid is born, then basically you're, you're negating the importance and value of both parents being able to step in. And so I think that basically if a man's value is based on his own accomplishment and women can't be done the same thing, I think that it's putting women as second and putting men as a primary in terms of this is their main role. And it's excluding young women, old women, women who aren't able to have their own children, women who don't want to have children. And so I just think that it's a very scary, dangerous road to go down. Again, like there, what we were talking about before on different layers of intimidation that are happening, but there's different layers of privilege based on who the woman is, right, that she has to contend with and push back against, right? If you're a white woman who's got economic privilege, you're still up against this notion that you don't get to decide, but you have ways of paying for resources to get to and from places that you might not be able to do if you didn't have those. And the more you are marginalized in this social structure, the harder this is, which is why women of color have been probably the most vocal about this decision because of where they sit in this situation. I was listening to a radio show recently, and one of the radio personalities was talking about it, how after her second pregnancy, her intestines were sticking out. So from a medical perspective, they went and fixed that part. but then. They didn't fix the whole entire thing because it was considered cosmetic. They said, oh, yeah, you know, you're fine. You know, this one we had to do because your intestines were coming out, but we're not going to reattach the wall everywhere because that's more cosmetic. It's one of those where women have already battled with basically the inequities in medical health care coverage and the way in which we're treated, but even in terms of what's covered by insurance, and it goes back to the impact on your body and the long-term impact. This isn't just like, oh man, I have to lose some weight. This is stuff that has a long-term impact 
on a woman's health and well-being. And I think that unless you've gone through it, you don't get to decide. I think that that is a valid request. So I'm thinking about the different states that we are representing. You know, we've got New Mexico, Michigan, Washington, Minnesota on this call. And I think one of the things that people need to hear is when you're in a state like New Mexico that has these rights protected, I can't speak to the other states. I think each of you can. It makes me reflect on the quote from Dr. Martin Luther King of no man is free until all men are free. And no woman is free until all women are free. And to see the divisiveness based on geography and jurisdictional lines and state borders should continue to be a concern for us, regardless of what your state residence is and the laws there. I remember how hard it was for women to get an abortion when it was legal in a state that had it. I mean, everything they had to go through to get this to happen. And now that this has been rescinded, it just boggles the mind, the barriers that they just put up for women having some autonomy over their bodies. Right. It's not going to work. Washington State should be pretty safe in that way for now. But you can't have a patchwork of laws across the country and just the confusion and lack of clarity. Because even if you live in a state where it's somewhat accessible, if you're traveling or visiting relatives in another state where it's not and you have a medical emergency, you're going to really be in a world of trouble. So it really needs to be a national policy that will cover just to make the procedure accessible and safe. It really needs to be up between the woman, her doctor, her family, and the people who have a stake in this because there's so many medical issues and concerns, uh, even apart from domestic violence, that the state just should not be involved in this, this decision. That's my perspective. I remember working with a woman at the clinic, and she'd been assaulted by somebody in her church, and she was Catholic. And so that was the 1980s. This is a, obviously abortion was not something that was an option. And she was in her late 40s, early 50s, and she's pregnant now. And she came in with her husband, and she's going through. It's a sin, right, to do what she's doing. She wasn't in a position to have a child at that age. And it had caused all this just personal turmoil. The only thing, the easiest thing she did was actually the procedure. Everything leading up to it, right, seemed insurmountable. And we had some, at the time, there there were a few nuns that were sympathetic. And we could refer Catholic women to talk about you know, their decision and what they had done, but they, they still were able to make that decision, right? And it's situations like that, that unfortunately are not uncommon, that we've just made exponentially more difficult for her to make it. I mean, what would she have done now? Yeah. And, and when you said that, it just reminded me too. So even though Washington state is pretty liberal, at least the Western part where I live, Many hospitals are starting to merge with Catholic facilities. Virginia Mason just merged with Franciscan. And so even if you're not Catholic, they have to live with that doctrine. And so that's going to control people's access if you get sexually assaulted and you can't get the morning after pill or abortion or even access to birth control. Any of those things are kind of off the table or certain forms of reproductive technologies if you want to become pregnant. So this is just really going to be disastrous, I think, for the entire country in lots of ways that we had not even anticipated. And I think part of it is as those of us who work in this field of gender-based violence, we're going to have to really grapple with this and have some really hard conversations with the people that we seek to serve. Is there anything that any of you want to add? I guess the last thing I want to add is that 
now is a time to really start having the conversation about not just talking about this as an individual relationship issue, but also talking about structural violence and historical trauma. We can't separate those things out anymore, that this is embedded in institutional violence, structural violence in terms of economics and housing, historical trauma in terms of how this has unfolded in the lives of women of color. And we've got to take a more nuanced approach to this if we want to really address what this will mean in the lives of the people that we serve. And on the flip side of that, Carolyn, we need to quit talking about individual men who make these decisions. The statement, it takes a community to raise a child, it takes a community to raise a better. And so we need to see the things within our social structure that are informing men to be violent to women, to be entitled to control them, and if we want to solve this problem, it's not going to be in a men's group. It's going to be outside that group. And all those different ways that Carolyn just talked about are crucial conversations we need to start having. I looked up this, what the Supreme Court has said about this decision over time. And in 1992, in the famous Casey decision, the court said, the ability of women to participate equally in economic and social life of the nation has been facilitated by the ability to control their reproductive lives. And they just reversed that. It's always been legally about women's autonomy. The conversation on the street is often about babies, right? But that's never been the legal part of this. Harry Blackman, who authored Roe versus Wade, I just pulled a quote from him, called Roe a step that had to be taken as we go down the road toward full emancipation of women. And when you look at the flip side of that, by overturning Roe, is that women lose autonomy over their bodies. And that's the macro version of this. The micro version is he's doing the same thing to her in the house. I think there's a link between that decision and how it sets a tone socially about what women get to do with their bodies or not on a micro level. I looked up the date. Uh, it was July 5th, 1993. So 29 years ago, the last state outlawed marital rape. In, in most people who are listening to this, in your lifetime, there was a time when it wasn't a law on the books. July 5th, 1993. I mean, the debate even on that is about whether or not a man gets to have sex with his wife whenever he wants to. I mean, it's still an argument over autonomy. Right. I mean, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Is does she have the ability and the right to say no if she's married to somebody? I mean, all these things, you know, there's a lot of tangential kind of conversations that happen around these things. But ultimately, it comes back to how free do we want women to be? I think for me, what this has really highlighted is, is the unfortunate similarities of a small group of people having power and control over a large group of people. And so, again, with family violence, it focuses on the relationship or on two individuals the majority of the time. But if you really and truly look at this, there's a lot of similarities in terms of a few who the violence may not impact, but many who, who are really impacted by this. And so I completely and totally agree with really focusing on the systemic changes that need to be made because for so long, all of the responsibility has been put on the survivor for her to solve the issue, even though the problems were not caused by her. But the, but the responsibility to solve all those problems or just deal with the system the way it is, it shouldn't be accepted anymore because this is really and truly an issue that impacts everybody. And the impact of this current with the Roe versus Wade decision is going to have such a long-term impact, both physically, monetarily, socially, psychologically, in terms of just the way in which society views and women view themselves. Well, thank you so much for your willingness to give. All right, thanks. 
Awesome. All right. See you soon. Bye. We'll see ya. I'll see you. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. If you'd like to see the power and control wheel used for this discussion, you can find a link in the show notes. I will also link to the Duluth Library of Varying Power and Control Wheels that illustrate how these tactics can show up differently for different demographics. We want to thank our programs that work tirelessly across the state to support those affected by domestic violence. Each and every staff member, advocate, therapist, and supporter is important. We appreciate you. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, there is help available. Please call the hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or 1-800-799-7233 or visit their website on a safe device at www.thehotline.org. Love our conversations? Make sure to subscribe, rate, and share our podcast. You can submit questions and feedback to Rochelle at nmcadv.org. Thanks for listening in.